This is episode number three with David Sokol. Welcome to the Life Optimized Show. My name is Dave Singh, and each week I bring you fascinating conversations with inspiring thought leaders from all around the world about what it really takes to optimize your business, leadership, and life. David, thanks for being here. It's absolutely a pleasure and an honor to have you on and very, very excited um, to have you on in one of the really early episodes of the show. As I mentioned to you before, uh, and as people who are listening to this hopefully by now realize as well, that this show is not about interviewing people just in business or just in one particular field or even representing their products or services. It's really about representing their stories. And, uh, you know, you, you hold a very interesting position in um, in, in a very big organization, but uh, but I was much more interested in interviewing you uh, and, and just having a chat with you, a very conversational chat with you, because of uh, because of the conversations that we've shared in the past, but especially the conversation that we had um, the last time we met, which was you know catching up after a while. Yeah, um, yeah I'm excited to be part of it. I appreciate the invitation to uh, to have a chat to you about these things. Uh, you're most welcome. So usually, usually what I do is, uh, you know, I like to keep bios and introductions pretty informal and quite, um, quite conversational and quite fluid, and just introduce the person that I'm speaking to based around uh, my relationship with them, how I got to know them. But in your case, if if it's okay with you, David, I'd really like to read the bio that you sent me because I was just, I just found it so inspiring and so brilliant and. There's no way that I can possibly introduce you better than uh, what you wrote. I, is that okay if I just go ahead and read that? By all means, absolutely. Okay, cool. So uh, I'm, I'm going to read this verbatim. Uh, David Sokol has been in the management workforce for over 20 years. In between a corporate IT management career in the insurance and finance sector and regional management experience in the community service sector, uh, which is where I met you, uh, David spent 10 years as a counselor, both in Sydney and in the central west of New South Wales. In his personal life, David has lived a life that mirrors so many others in the community. Two marriages, two daughters, and most recently his first grandchild. Congratulations. Thank you. But David's interest in working in areas of grief came from his own experiences. He's the first generation of parents who came to Australia as a result of the Holocaust, when most of his extended family were exterminated. He has been retrenched a few times in his work life, and his second wife died of cancer when she was aged 34. But David was so busy working and being a father, he never realized how all of those life experiences and circumstances were adding up. Then, in 2013, after his first trip to Israel, which turned out to be a very emotional trip, things began to fall apart for him. Now, after eight months on antidepressant medication, he can talk about his recent experiences and how many men he has met along the way who were also seeing the life slide downwards, some of whom are still not at the point of going to the doctor. Well, when I, uh, when I read this, I was, uh, you know, I was quite moved. And now that I'm reading it again out loud, I'm, I'm moved again. And I was, quite, I was actually quite moved, probably more than I expressed it uh, when we actually met up for coffee last time and you know, caught up after a long time. Just because yeah. the the way that you said it in a very 
matter of fact and in a very sincere way you just sort of came out and and spoke about your experiences there was a sincerity and authenticity to it that i think so many people shy away from and it's i mean my mind started ticking with um, you know a whole bunch of interest and intrigue but i could i could really relate to that because it took me uh, a long time to you know allow myself to, for it to be a part of my public image to say that you know um I, i've had some really crazy experiences with depression and um i've had some very very personal experiences with uh you know people who have been very close to me dealing with depression so I've, i've seen that i've seen the black dog really really closely and it's it's crazy how much it is still just something that is i don't know if you'd call it taboo or it's it's stigmatized or you know people are just not comfortable talking to, talking about it and then when you meet someone who is so comfortable and so open to just be honest you realize it it kind of makes you realize intuitively the value of that as well so firstly i wanted to ask you um what like in that moment was it a conscious thought before you met with me to say that well you know i'm meeting this guy did you have that conversation in your head and said should i like how personal should i be in telling uh him what i've been dealing with or not no i just um, look i guess my philosophy in in private life in work life in 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 the way i manage people is to be straight up um um in a in a funny sort of way i'm an incredibly simple <laughs> a simple person and it's easier just to to be to describe where i am at at any point in time um i i think what you talk about in terms of the tabooness um it's it's perhaps more a boy thing than a girl thing i think guys many guys have great difficulty in showing vulnerability given our social you know kind of education of being the warriors and the providers and the um you know the hunters and and all of those things mm-hmm. uh, to then turn around and say gee things aren't so good um and look i think if i look back to before when the the time my my wife passed away which was um just 15 years ago i think the week before last and um i was that sort of guy like nothing stopped me and part of that is also naivety and some of it is is denial um certainly i was strong through um the end of karen's illness mm. um but now i i look at how self aware i've become um as part of that journey and and i look at men that we that the pass through the door of work and their level of self awareness their their level of being prepared to be vulnerable certainly to be prepared to take responsibility for their decisions and their actions um are really our guiding light to how likely they are to to be able to to uh reflect on where they are to be able to say gee I'm making bad decisions um or I'm not sleeping that well and not thinking that it's just the boogeyman at night mm. and to have things pile up to a point where there needs to be some intervention and even for myself it took me um four or five months mm-hmm. after I came back from Israel where I was behaving in in a um quite a peculiar way um before I went to the doctor and and that was getting 
to a point where I wasn't getting to sleep until um, three in the morning and then getting up and going to work and then starting to make really, really bad decisions at work and, and really um, relating to people in a particularly poor way that made me feel that I really had no choice but to go to the doctor. And, and people afterwards, um, because then I made no secret of it. Um, I don't know what that was about other than and in being open to sharing my story um, all of a sudden, other people that I socialised with said, oh, I'm on those tablets too. And I said, why are we whispering? Um, so <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of taught me that it, there's a lot of secrets out there. Yeah. Um, and they were just looking at me saying, how can you talk about these things? Hmm. And I said, um, because that's where I am. That's just describing where I am. I'm not over-exaggerating it. Um, it. It is what it is. Um, and, and people said, yes, but you've just become a grandfather and you know, those things will get you through. And I can tell you those things really have very little meaning when you're in the hole. And, and the hole for me was, was um, sitting on the carpet at home looking at a wall for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Not very interesting. Um, but not being able to be motivated by wonderful things happening around me. And... Uh, and then being able to analyze if I'm, if I'm feeling like this, what's actually wrong in my life? And then realizing actually nothing was wrong in my life, which then was kind of this dichotomy that says, well, if nothing's wrong with my life, why am I feeling like this? Hmm. And then having to do something about it. And, and the guys that I've met in the last eight months who are traveling this journey for themselves, um, it's it's really we're all doing it differently and um but i don't see shame in it as, as i said it, i have a very simple way of living and, and when karen died i started volunteering for the cancer council and started advocating for the, the the husbands and partners and family members of cancer patients and and what's happening to them and and who's supporting them and what's happening to family relationships and um because I was able to look back and, and say things were really hard for us and there wasn't anyone around to talk to. Um, yet there were probably lots and lots and lots of people who were experiencing exactly the same um, environment. Hmm. So, no, I, don't, I didn't kind of pre-prepare what we were going to talk about over coffee. But, you know, you and I have always shared an, an honest um, friendship and, and to me it's just like if someone says... How have the last six or eight months been? Well, they've been dark, but it's getting brighter. Um, I, I can't run from that. I've got no reason to. I don't hold the shame that others might. And, and by de-shaming it for myself, it just makes it real. Yeah, I think, I think you, really, you really hit on a key word there, which is, uh, which, which is about shame. That a lot of people associate or feel or experience a lot of shame associated with this and you know, I've uh, I've been through that as well, and I've kind of dealt with it, and I know a lot of other people have, and I think it has a lot to do with how integrated it becomes as part of your identity. People feel that if I'm going through something like this, that is so, you know, uh, beyond being able to objectify that it's a cut on my arm or it's um, a broken leg or you know mm. even something like the flu, it's yeah. it, if it's something associated with your mind, then it's who you are, and 
if you are going through something like depression or some sort of mental health issue, it is essentially saying that your entire being is flawed. That's right. That's the, that's the risk that we would judge ourselves that way and that others might judge us that way. Yeah. Um, and then, but, but there's so many, I mean, what was interesting for me is to find out how many um, tools there are that are available for free mm -hmm. to help you. It's not a diagnostic situation, but kind of, um, you know, pinch yourself to say, actually, you're, you're here. What's real is um, your results in, in these um, um, scales. And I'm referring to what's called the DAS scales, depression, anxiety and stress and, and DASS. And you can Google it and there's a DAS 21, which has 21 statements, I think, that you can answer. And I think there's also a DAS 42. Not sure if that's free or not. But it's not a, um, a replacement for going to the doctor. It's about going to the doctor with this saying, um, these results kind of indicate that I need to be seeing you. I mean, yeah. in my case, I couldn't get four words out before I broke down in the doctor's surgery, so he already had a clue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and all I could get out was, you have to help me. Okay. Now, I, I want to ask you a really practical question, and just because, uh, you know, uh, I've explained this in previous interviews as well, and I think I may have spoken to you about this, that I don't necessarily have a list of linear questions that I go through, so we might be jumping around back and forth, but this is a question that's on my mind. It's a little bit controversial, and um, I, I just know if I don't ask it now, it might pass, so we can come back to a couple of other things I want to talk about, but mm -hmm. in I know a lot of people listening to this, and I am actually one of them. Uh, are very, very skeptical about going to a GP for mental health issues specifically. Yep. Not even necessarily because um, people have a problem with psychiatrists or the pharmaceutical industry's influence on psychiatric care. And, you know, I've seen this quite a bit from the inside and um, and I know that it's it can be quite messed up, but I'm not, I'm not anti-psychiatric medications. Mm. Um, but I know that, unfortunately, you know, having gone through... Um, not gone through, but gone to medical school for a little while and, uh, you know, having friends that are psychiatrists. I know that GPs are, or they have been traditionally very, very poorly trained in dealing with mental health issues. So you will either get the GPs who are very trigger happy when it comes to prescribing drugs and yeah. they'll bypass the entire, you know, psychological intervention. Um, and, or you'll get, uh, you'll get GPs who will basically just look at you extremely clinically and objectively and uh, not really, you know, even consider um, that you might not be at the stage of needing medication, or maybe mm. you are at the stage of needing medication, and instead of writing you a mental health care plan to go to a psychologist, you actually need some more uh, urgent uh, intervention. Yeah. So my question is, so just to be clear uh, for everyone listening, uh, you're not a psychiatrist, you're not a doctor, but you yeah. are, uh, you know, you are a psychologist, and uh, you've been practicing for years, and well, I'm a you, counselor. I'm not you're a, a counselor, sorry. A counselor. Yeah, and yep. Yep. but but the point is that you you know day in and day out you deal you you must have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, people dealing with issues of various mental health related stuff. Sure. So, how do you yep. how do you determine when to go to a GP, and how do you determine if the GP that you do go to is actually uh, qualified besides just having that um, poster on their wall that says they're a doctor yeah they're actually qualified in you know being able to talk to you and treat you properly uh, in relation to mental health stuff 
it's it's an interesting question and and um and i and i think it's complex i think the situation is complex i think most people maybe not most people i think it's important in choosing in the in the same way that we encourage people to um, interview the counselor and check them out the first time to establish some sort of rapport, mm -hmm. um, I would suggest, consciously or unconsciously, people are doing that with a dentist. They're yeah. doing that with their doctor. Um, they might well do it with a with a um, police officer mm -hmm. if they want to report something or, or talk about it. It's like, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel that I'm being heard, or are they just going to kind of railroad me with their stuff? I think in my case. Uh, it was interesting because I didn't go to the doctor that I've been going to for 15 years. Oh, okay. um, because lately I've been feeling that uh, he's taking less and less of an interest in me and I'm becoming more and more of a statistic, Medicare statistic for him. Hmm. Um, but because the meltdown happened at work, there happens to be a, a clinic three doors down from the office. Right. And one of the other staff recommended a, one of the doctors in the clinic. And I just felt comfortable with the the way he um, worked with me, the way he spoke to me, the way he already put out a, a kind of a roadmap where it's in listening to him, it reminded me of conversations that I've had with with psychiatrists, for example, mm -hmm. um, when I worked in, as a counselor in a medical clinic. Um, yeah. The psychologist, the, the psychiatrist would say, um, I'm sending, you know, this person or that person to you. They've been on, on medication for 12 months, um, undoubtedly removing the symptoms, but I don't think I'm qualified to actually get to the root cause of, of their emotional distress. So if I maintain them on their medication so that they are working with you at their peak performance, can you work with them to unravel the emotional stuff? And and that's what this doctor said to me. We're going to start you on medication because we need to stabilize you. Mm -hmm. We need to raise you from the low that you're in. Now, you're not going to be jumping off the walls, but you're going to become at least more rational if this medication works. If I need to refer you to a psychiatrist after I think he gave me a six-week period. Mm -hmm. I had to come back and see him in six weeks. He said, I'll make that assessment in six weeks' time. So if the medication has made no difference, um, he certainly did a um, suicidality assessment, right. um, which was, <laughs> I must say that, that that stopped me in the tracks because I, I said, I'm a counsellor. I normally do that to other people. <laughs> yeah. So he was able to say, you see, that, so there's an element of, of kind of life still in you that you can, you can make a joke of it, mm. but, you know, that reaction is, is a really good reaction for me to see. But he said, this is the roadmap. So we'll do six weeks of this, come back and see me, let's review where you're at. Mm -hmm. um, and that made me feel comfortable. It made me feel that he wasn't the Lone Ranger. I mean, he knows what work I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I felt we were in partnership straight away. Mm. And, and I would recommend that everyone has the right to be that informed, feel that comfortable with their GP. 
And that's not always the case. Um, in fact, again, we were talking at work today about some of these bigger clinics where it's very difficult for you to choose a doctor to be your doctor. They just walk in on, they, they run the model as a walk-in next available. Okay, so yeah. So there's not even a continuity of care. Now, personally, I'd never go to those places, but mm. um, there, there's a lot of stuff out there. So, you know, there, there are bad plumbers out there and there are bad um, dentists and there's bad builders and bad car mechanics. Um, I think each of us needs to make some sort of judgment call and albeit at a time for me when my judgment was already impaired and, and that was one of the triggers that led me to the doctor. Um, but I was even aware of that. I was even aware of how do I know that I can trust this guy? Um, but for me, it was like, well, if you want me to come back in just six weeks time and he'd already told me that the next two weeks are going to be as rough as hell as you get used to the medications. So I don't want you to be at work hmm. after that. Um, you know, the symptoms will reduce, but you still won't be happy. Um, and, and everything then kind of got ticked off the timeline after two, the first two weeks were terrible. Um, although others on the same medication hadn't experienced that. Um, the four weeks after that, before I went to, back to see him, um, things improved in the sense that I was actually starting to get some sleep and that general feeling of fatigue passed, which was contributing to my inability to make kind of positive judgment calls because I was half of me was falling asleep all the time. So I felt that he was kind of setting a timeline and I was just ticking the boxes and that gave me a reason to be much more confident in the way he was planning to handle it and he'd already forecast the fact that he would refer me on um, after this initial period if, if there wasn't any improvement. Hmm. It sounds like a lot of things just fell into place with that relationship including the fact that you know you have your own professional experiences and perspective and then he kind of played the part pretty well um, yeah it's it's unfortunate I've heard a lot of just really nasty experiences with uh, with GPS and and even to some extent some psychiatrists as well obviously psychiatrists have a bit more specialist training but my main concern is that you know obviously I want this interview not just to be interesting but actually constructive to people out there who might be going through a bit of a situation and not really know where to start and I know that people who are a lot of people who I'm connected with and people who listen to this podcast and shows like this are very much into personal development and uh, self-help basically and mm. it seems to me that especially over the past 15 years or so the more into self-help you are the more uh, propaganda and I, I don't mean that as a dirty word I just mean in a very matter-of-fact way it is propaganda about um, you know anti psychiatrists, anti-psychiatric um, anti medication, anti-pharmaceutical companies. It's kind of taken to a great extreme. Uh, I'm by no means on that extreme. In fact, my, my dad has worked for pharma, uh, pharmaceutical industry his entire life. So I've kind of you know, had a little bit more of an objective perspective on where medication is very, very really useful and needed and where you know the, the lines start getting a bit blurred. But I yeah, feel like... I I think the self-help thing, though, if, if it's if it's helping somebody, yep. it will actually be empowering them. And yeah. even in the midst of kind of a, a crappy black part in your life, you, you can't unlearn what you've learned. 
So if you've learned some degree of self empowerment, mm -hmm. and um, th then you can't unlearn that. You become more. Uh, it's like your antennae are, are up when you're meeting people, and and I think that will help kind of um, foster a trusting relationship. Um, and if it like if it doesn't feel right, well, go get a second opinion, mm. or have someone come with you at the time so then you can go for a coffee afterwards and both of you can get a sense of do you think that guy was you know on the on the money or do you think he was ripping us off and and certainly when i as i said before I, i'd spent time as a counselor in a in a large medical clinic there were 18 doctors there mm -hmm. and uh, you're absolutely right i mean some of the doctors would not refer to me um they would blindly um, um write repeats for medication and and would unashamedly say to me um, why would i refer them to you when if i just give them a repeat i keep the money oh my god seriously <laughs> yeah oh, and they look me straight wow. right or or one of the others who referred a client off for 20 sessions with a psychologist at 220 dollars a session wow and i said to the doctor how did you know it was going to be 20 sessions like, where did you get this information from? Yeah. And I said to the guy, go. He said, no, he didn't have the money. And I said, well, how is that helpful? Oh, so, man. That... Yeah, look, there are, there are lots of stories. And I think at the end of the day, regardless of um, where we are in our, in our hole, I think your point is well made in terms of the, the growth in, in self-help and self-awareness stuff. Because at the end of the day, there's only one person who should really be looking after you. That's you. And, and you, you do that while you're healthy mm. and develop these skills and, and this sense of being able to read people and, and, and accept your own limitation. That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting, interesting way and to put it. And ask for help. There's, yeah. there's, there's another idea. <laughs> so it's, so it's almost like it's you're actually being... Sorry, David. I keep interrupting you because I think the line's cutting off a little bit, but that's all right. Oh, okay. Uh, no, please, please go ahead. Um, so I, th I think it's really um, this uh, almost an opportunity to practice new life skills that you may have developed in your well time when you're not so well. Now, the not so well could be a relationship not working, or you just lost a job, or you know, whatever the case may be, because that's the test. That's not when you learn. It's a bit like, you know, parenting. You, you don't set up the rules of disciplining your, your children with your children in the middle of an argument with them. You do it when there's nothing to fight about. You just get the agreement in place so that when there's a no, you just go, well, what were the rules? And, and I think self-help and personal mental health needs to perhaps be, in, in my view at least, um, looked at as... as an opportunity to put into action all of the kind of theoretical beliefs that that one picks up along the the, the road of self-help. I love that. I think that's really valuable. A lot of people, I find, uh, turn to self-help and personal development as an alternative to uh, psychiatric, psychiatric care. And I know because I did that and it helped me. And mm. I consider myself really fortunate that um, it, it maybe it took me a little bit longer, but I was able to you know, bypass getting sucked down the rabbit hole of just getting caught up in complicated uh, psychiatric medication. And, you know, maybe, maybe I just wasn't that bad off anyway in the first place. But the fact is, is that being 
very well absorbed and immersed in the uh, self-help personal development kind of world you know over a period of 10 years it taught me a lot but i always well for a long time i thought of it as this is therapeutic and uh, treatment and it took me a while to get to a point where i realized that well actually this is skill development and it's learning and when i do get sick um you know it, it I, I have these tools there to yeah. use it's not like i need to go and uh look at it as a treatment or therapy and i think a lot of people just they don't invest in themselves this is what it really comes down to they don't invest in their mental health they don't invest in their um in their mental fitness as they would going to a gym to build up their immune system and eating well to build up their immune system to make sure they don't get sick rather it's almost like they just wait around to get sick and then when they do then they'll consider their options yes indeed and and look as you mentioned in in my bio uh, i've done a lot of work uh, around the grief model um and and not necessarily to do with anyone dying um, it could be retrenchment, retirement, um, change management, where work patterns are lost. And like I've worked a lot in grief, and and whilst I personally love using Kubler-Ross's model um, because it's it's kind of out there and everyone knows it and it's been around for a while. But I don't use the word depression as the fourth um, stage. I mm. use sadness yeah. because it's okay. To be sad, you know, I, I, and, and maybe this is what you're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't want people to feel that if I grieve, if I allow myself to grieve, it means I'm depressed and there's, I'm, I'm, and there's something wrong that I need to fix. I say to people, absolutely be sad, and if that means you cry, um, that's okay, because that's really, as as John Warden said, it's it's connecting to the grief. It actually gives value to to what you've lost. If that e- extends in time, different story. Hmm. So just to be just to be absolutely clear, you're talking about uh, the model that is denial, anger, um, bargaining, and then typically that's, it's depression and then acceptance, right? right? And acceptance. So that's yeah. uh, Kubler Ross's model okay. from 1969. Um, so it's been around, and and people have for a long time thought because she did all of her research in a hospice that the <clears throat> model only talks about um, preparing for death. Yeah. But as I've said, I've used it in all sorts of corporate situations. I've worked for outsourcing organisations that have worked with people who have been retrenched. Um, we've run retirement preparation classes, all of those sorts of things. And um, this is part of it. Um, it is sad if you've worked you know, for XYZ organization for, for 25 years and, and now they've retrenched you or you've even chosen to retire, you're, you are losing. It's loss. It's your friends at work. It's the routine of catching the 647 train from Strathfield. It's, it's this whole change of procedure. It's the, the questioning of my worth and my value now. Mm-hmm. Um, but so whilst I use that five-stage model, I'm really careful about explaining my take on sadness versus depression because even avoiding the sadness, I'm feeling sad but I'll pretend I'm okay, Hmm. is what you had said earlier, Dev, in terms of the layering of unprocessed stuff. 
Um, because people, especially men, believe that if I just look the other way, the stuff will go away. What they don't realize is that it's actually tattooed on their bum and, you know, they're carrying it everywhere. Yeah. And it's going to pop up and bite them when they least expect it because they think, oh, I dealt with that 30 or 40 years ago. Um, no, you maybe, maybe no, you didn't. Mm. Maybe some people do. But you layer something else on top of that and layer something else on top of that. And, um, you know, it, it kind of doesn't just dissipate. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be processed. You might need to forgive people who are still alive. You may need to forgive people who have passed away. You may need to forgive yourself saying, you know, I, and take responsibility and say, I really stuffed that up years ago, but I've learned my lesson. I absolutely know what that was about. And that holds me in a much more ethical position to say the likelihood of that happening again is extremely low. Hmm. I got to add to that as well that I think in my personal experience at least which is a lot less than uh, than your experience working with the clients and patients that you've worked with well you're a young years. man and an old man that's the other difference <laughs> <laughs> well maybe a little bit different I, th- I think you're a couple of years older than me <laughs> but uh, but in my experience women are having this issue of denial or uh, kind of you know shoving problems under the rug more and more and sometimes I wonder if it's you know to do with kind of neo-feminist psychology or if it's to do with just uh, the demands placed on women changing over the years. Uh, I'm not really sure what it is, but I've definitely noticed personally that women are kind of coming to that level as well where uh, if they have problems, their emotions might be a lot more raw when it comes to the issues manifesting, but that element of pretending like everything's okay uh, is is becoming a lot more stronger as well. Mm. Have you noticed that too? Look, personally, I haven't, um, although I can see social circumstances changing for, you know, couples, young couples, for example, where mum needs to, because of financial and high mortgage stuff, uh, go back to work faster after the baby was born and, um, and, and maybe there's some um, guilt associated with leaving the baby at a daycare earlier than they planned to or whatever. Right. Um, and... and I think women, I think once you're in the workforce, male or female, you kind of become a little bit of a mouse on the treadmill, depending on the speed that the organisation that you work for is travelling. So it it kind of makes sense. Um, Personally, I haven't observed it, but it, it, it does make sense to me. And it's interesting you say that because I've definitely noticed this a lot more with younger women um, than I have with older women. So it's more kind of my generation and even younger that are becoming and it's not necessarily that they're more masculinized or that they're behaving in a more masculine way it's just this particular element of um really trying to de- deny any kind of emotional uh, expression which is very strange and very counter to uh, i guess you know the the more traditional stereotypes of men being you know the blokes being the ones that are the strong silent types or uh, when yeah. it comes to emotional expression and women being a lot more fluid, uh, and, and I think maybe there's um, maybe there's some other reason, or I don't know. It really makes me wonder. And I it also we're more yeah. time poor now. Hmm. And I think if if women, um, you know, in the old let me just say in, in inverted 
commas, the old days, hmm. um, may have been home longer um, or worked hours that gave them the time still to catch up with their girlfriends and, and get stuff off their chest. I think if they're locked into this um, mouse on a treadmill, um, then even keeping their contribution high to the household, dad's working hard, mum's working hard, they want to see each other a bit and they certainly want to support the kids. Um, maybe there's a general observation that, that it's harder to find time to self-soothe and self-manage and, and self-grow because we're time poor now. Mm. That could be one of the things. Yeah, very interesting. We're talking about, you know, generational changes and um, how people and genders are sort of changing over time. This uh, reminds me that it's something I wanted to ask you and something you referred to a little bit earlier in the conversation, this idea of learning and unlearning. Yes. I've always been quite curious when it comes to depression or mental health problems in general manifesting. Where, where do you think the cracks start forming under the surface? Um, it's actually a complicated question because for some people it, it truly is um, possibly a genetic biochemical imbalance in the brain. Uh -huh. um, for others, I, I, I think it is that if they... It's funny, if you have a low level of self-awareness, um, you typically stay in denial of so much of your life. Um, but that doesn't mean the stuff goes away. And mm. people who even are self-aware don't have time to process things so it stays in denial because I just don't have time. Yeah. So I think then, for me, for example, it was going to Israel. Now, it was my first trip. I'm, not I'm Jewish, but I'm not particularly religious. So what was it, walking along the promenade on the beachfront of Tel Aviv, that I burst into tears on my first day there? Yeah. And, and for the first 10 days I was there, part of every day I was crying and I had no idea why, except that I had a feeling that I, and this is where the self-awareness, because I was prepared to sit down on a fence and, and talk it through with myself, um, which gathers its own kind of sightseeing tourist thing if you're st sitting there talking to yourself, um, <laughs> like what's this all about? Where is this coming from? Yeah. And, and it kept in my head coming back to, you haven't dealt with your family. Like my family was lost in, in Europe, but Israel was, you know, is, is the safe haven, I guess, as a Jewish state. Um, and that's the only thing I can think of. I, it, I haven't come back more religious, but I've come back certainly, um, both my parents have passed away, but I've come back with a very different view of my family past. Doesn't mean I'm into genealogy, whatever it's called. Um, <coughs> But it's, it's, it's just more important, I think, for me to validate what went on in my parents' generation. Uh, now, I was really curious about this in your bio as well. You said... Uh, so, you for said, me, it was that. It was just yeah, so, sorry, the line keeps uh, cutting off a little bit, that's why. Oh, okay. Yeah. In, in your bio, you said, um, you, you've written that you were the first generation of parents who came to Australia as a result of the Holocaust. Yep. Uh, 
I, I was curious to just sort of ask you um, if you could explain what that means exactly. Well, I, I was excited to find out that there's actually lots of books written mm-hmm. um, on this, um, and I laughed when I found that out. Um, but one of the things that I found out in in Israel on one of the tours I did was the country after the war that took most um, Jewish immigrants in was Australia. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. And it formed the basis of the Melbourne Jewish community. Hmm. So mum and dad met in Melbourne, and yet they were both born and raised in the same town in Poland. All right. Um, but they had very different Holocaust experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, what it meant to first generation, um, we laugh about it until we, until we understand it better. So, for example, the idea that a, uh, the stereotype that a Jewish mother will always cook for 45 people even when the next door neighbours are coming over yeah. um, comes from the fact that I know in my mum's case, she was displaced for years. So she was dragging my grandmother around trying to forage from, they would pick uh, strawberries from the fields at night um, as they were shuttled from train to train all over Europe, including a um, all expenses paid tourist trip to Siberia in the middle of winter when they had no clothes and, you know, and no provisions. So for mum, the greatest compliment she could pay to anyone, although she couldn't articulate any of this, was when you come to my house, you will not leave hungry. Hmm. And I didn't understand any of that because she didn't talk about it. She just shoved food (laughs) and shoved food and shoved food. Um, Equally, her view of um, education um, was, was, I don't know, I guess for for Aussie families, they would look at my mum and dad and say they were overvaluing education. But that's because they never had a chance to get an education. Um, you know, mum was at, at age 12 and 13 or whatever it was, dragging around these strawberry fields in, in Poland, Poland and Russia and Siberia at night. Um, that's not really an education. So she overly valued and put enormous pressure. Um, first generation Holocaust survivors in Australia have been brought up under incredible pressure to perform um, and and do well. And and mum mum and dad lived their lives vicariously through through my sister and myself. Um, so they drove us harder and harder so that they could tell their friends more and more about achievements that we had uh, had had uh, achieved. And uh, boy, you crack under the pressure. But it was only to really towards the end and after I'd gone back and studied counselling um, the year 2000, or the Olympics, that's right, um, that I was able then to, still without talking about it, because mum still wouldn't talk about it, mm. um, I was able to evaluate her life with so much less judgement um, than I did when I was the kid under pressure that, you know, I remember coming home from school and, and getting all excited. I said, oh, we got the exam results today, Mum, and she said, "What did you get?" And I said, "98 percent." She said, "Where did you lose the two marks?" <laughs> right, and it was, and that mortified me. This is such I, a this is such an Indian thing to say as well. I can totally funny. relate to it. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I know I have uh, Chinese friends who have the similar experience. Yeah, so the pressure on you to perform. Yeah. Um, and and believe me, as a male, uh, um, that performance anxiety um, 
became apparent in a lot of my corporate work, my capacity to be brave enough to try something new, to be brave enough to um, uh, work through a half-baked solution. Because typically performance anxiety um, is, is, is visualized by someone who won't do anything. They're actually paralyzed until they have a complete solution that they double check 15 times, then they might take the first step. And in corporate life, of course, you don't always have the luxury of that sort of work environment. Mm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I think yeah, I saw I saw this book recently. Someone sent me a photo of it, and then I literally just saw it today in a bookshop as well. Um, I think it was a bit of a joke, but it said on the cover, uh, "How to traumatize your children in twenty-one steps," or so, <laughs> something like that. But yeah, it, it's interesting. Every everyone has, um, you know, when I did my training as a coach, uh, one of the running jokes was that if you run out of all your line of questionings, you can just look at your client and say. Uh, so, mummy issues or daddy issues? <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing, I think, for, for um, first-generation Holocaust survivors is that the normal European um, pressures of success mm-hmm. are layered with all of the grief and all of the torture and all of the um, 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 being um, without a home for years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of that unspoken post-traumatic stress is what I'd call it. Um, mm. But I couldn't even get that far of unraveling it with, with mum because she would just start crying. So she held to her, you know, to her dying day um, all of these memories that she said, you don't need to know about this stuff. It's, it's not going to help your life. Yeah. It might have helped me understand her life, but she said I'd rather protect you from that. Um, so I can only assume what she went through. So that was just another layer of, of um, she, didn't ha- she didn't trust. She had real issues around trust and, and they are easily passed on to children, those sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, she gave me lots of gifts that um, it was only in the last um, 15 or 16 years that I've been able to evaluate for myself often choose those things that I believe are of value, like don't stick your wet finger near a PowerPoint when it's on, Um, and those things that are of less value, which is don't trust anybody because they're going to rip you off, Hmm. and kind of pick and save some and pick others and discard them. And that's part of the process of being self-aware and taking responsibility and not saying, um, I'm a really bad manager because you were a really bad mum. It's about standing on your own two feet and saying, I made this decision and, and, and it was wrong and who am I going to tell or maybe hide it or do I blame someone else and deflect it? Um, our reactions to our day-to-day life um, is very much couched in um, the way we see ourselves and our own ethics and, and um, as I said from the outset, I'm such a simple guy. It's just easier for me to say, you know what, I stuffed that up. Uh, so how are we going to work on it together and try and resolve something? What can we salvage um, rather than sitting around? And I, I don't beat other people up and I don't beat myself up in public. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm sure, you've, I'm sure you beat yourself up plenty. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we all do. And uh, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's part of the process as well. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. 
Are you are you familiar at all with uh, Bud Hellinger's work around family systems? Uh, no, I'm not. No. So, but Bud Hellinger and family systems, a whole uh, well, I won't go into it because it's actually quite complex and quite uh, a little bit esoteric as well in the context of this conversation. And you know, for anyone listening, if you're interested, you can just look it up and. It's on Wikipedia. It's not that um, you know outrageous either. But essentially, what um, what family systems is about is uh, generational trauma passed down in a very you know in a very unexplained, transcendental kind of way, where um, the idea is that we will take on our ancestors' trauma in the hope of um, basically you know uh, relieving our ancestors' suffering. Um, based on the premise, as far as I understand, that there is no uh, chronological linearity to, um, to to generations in the spirit world. So spiritually speaking, you know your ancestors are not necessarily older than you, or there is a little bit of a, a complication when it comes to that order of your parents being older than you, your grandparents being older than them, their parents being older than them, etc., etc. And you end up with these things called um, uh, basically family entanglements. So that's that's kind of yeah, it is it's very fascinating. Um, so the reason I'm saying this is because I want to ask you: Do you think that the cracks under the surface that I was referring to can happen generationally, even when the person is not you know aware of what might have happened? Um, and a classic example would be you know generational trauma of being someone perhaps even of a younger generation to you, um, but their ancestors have gone through the Holocaust. Well, I think the Holocaust is a special example because um, even though my mum didn't, there are so many people who will tell their story down the family line mm-hmm. um, and always end the story with, we should never let this happen again. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of narrative around the Holocaust to almost deliberately to keep every generation um, acutely aware of, of what happened and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and maybe that's, you know, what you were saying was what happened to me in Israel, I, you know, where I got highly um, distressed without feeling, without being able to actually find a trigger to it. And it might be that we pass on to our kids almost through osmosis a whole lot of unresolved stuff from our parents or their parents or um, it, it you know it contains some reasoning um, with with that assumption. Yeah, you you probably don't know this, but as a um, you know as a person of Sikh heritage, uh, I can relate to that very much uh, because my family migrated here not as political refugees as such, but basically running away from a lot of political atrocity in uh, in 1984, uh, where there was basically this massive government conspiracy. If anyone's listening, you can look it up um, as Operation Blue Star. It's still very controversial. There's still a whole bunch of drama around it. But it was, in a sense, uh, somewhat like a Holocaust, uh, except it was just clouded in a lot of creativity um, with the political agendas. But basically, a bunch of Sikhs were uh, massacred in, um, in, in very brutal ways. So as a, as a fairly small community anyway, uh, com- you know, compared to the Jewish community, for example, uh, that is something that is 
really emphasized amongst um, amongst the Sikh community to ensure that exactly as you said that it's you know we will never forget never again it's very acutely uh, remembered and I almost wonder sometimes if um, you know people walk around with this uh, chip on their shoulder because it's it's a sign of respect that if we somehow let it go um, or just kind of you know really make a conscious effort as a community or as a culture to move on from what happened then it will be disrespecting everybody who suffered and so many people who still haven't got justice because of this issue but then I can understand where people are coming from by wanting to remember it but then what impact does that have on future generations in terms of their mental health that's right and it's also around their attitudes and um when I was working in the Central West, I mean, look at the story of the Aborigine in Australia. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I heard a wonderful presentation by a very strong and robust Aboriginal woman mm-hmm. who married a Jewish guy, converted okay. to Judaism. In fact, she was the first um, Jewish president of a synagogue in, in Newtown in Sydney. Okay. And um, she spoke and said, I've learned so much about the Jewish history and I certainly know about the Aboriginal history. Hmm. And, you know, there's a heck of a lot of similarities. But it's about saying that the past is in the past and we need to learn the lessons from the past, but not necessarily punish the present and the future. Hmm. So, you know, she's saying, well, the Jews shouldn't hate to everyone who's living in Germany today, maybe the Nazi movement, you might, neo-Nazis, but she said, I think it's also wrong for the Aboriginals, the Aborigines to be just so um, um, steadfast in saying we just hate white people. Hmm. Because she said that's all we're doing is passing on hatred. And when I was in the Central West, it was interesting because I used to speak to to young Aboriginal um, um, youth and and ask them if they have any idea why they're meant to be so cranky at the white man like how is it affecting you personally to that that you're living in this town and i'm living in this town and and many of them said exactly what you were intimating before you know dad told me this and uncle told me that and my grandfather told me that mm. and some of the stories were were but ugly but they're they're carrying the baton without really understanding the story, um, although they're certainly hearing one side of it, but it's without a strategy to deal with the present and the future. So the hatred, um, maybe that's a strong word, but I think you get, you know, the the negative feelings that are being passed down the generations, they Mm. feel some obligation to carry forward. And yet the solution, for them is is to get an education and 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 understand the incredible benefits that that would bring their people and to get a job and and understand what it is to be a a wonderful role model for your people um so there's certainly a risk with with a whole lot of different um um um, immigrants to australia refugees who are currently pouring into australia um to are we carrying the badge um, or are we noting the past and being respectful about it, but trying to work out a way forward that doesn't minimise the past and doesn't forget the past, but doesn't allow the 
that negativity to influence the way forward and the way present um, for ourselves and for our kids. Yeah. Well, it's it's a heavy issue and looking yeah. at it at a macro level, definitely. At a micro level, I wonder, the thing that stands out to me is experiences that I have meeting people who have some trauma in their family when they were very, very young, um, either with a grandparent or their parents. So an example that comes to mind is someone I met recently who, um, you know, when she was a young girl, her father died of alcoholism and she was left to basically grow up with her mother um, and, and really, really struggle um, to survive. And then she overcame that. So now when you look at this person at face value, um, you know, very bright young woman, very uh, successful by many, you know, many means. And yet there are still cracks under the surface, if you will. And there are certain things that kind of manifest in, um, in, in their lives that they're not happy with. And usually it's kind of the kind of things that you um, that that are basically they mirror or, or they uh, parallel um, the issue that they had when they were realistically too young to actually be conscious of it anyway so part, part of it yes I, I think um, but it's also life experiences and how we dealt with it and what we've learned from it that also affects us I mean I know people who I've worked with in their 40s that have not gone got over their first relationship breakup mm, wow um and you know their views of of women because at, at age 15 this 13 year old girl dumped him and and it's whoa like hello you know and and this guy just um is now justifying a, a life with alcohol and certainly a life on his own yeah by blaming this this girl who was 13 at the time and just said you're dumped um, which is kind of early teenage way of having a deep and meaningful I guess mm. um, and and he was carrying it into his 40s so that has affected him rightly or wrongly I mean that's his life story so I think part of it is absolutely that we get our initial values from our parents where else we're we going to get it from mm-hmm. and and our immediate family um, and then what is important, I believe, and certainly when I'm doing um, counselling work or, or mentoring work with teenagers, is these are the years that you are starting to develop an independence. And I think part of the res- taking responsibility for yourself in kind of defining your world is to look at what you believe in and why do you believe that to be so? and what is ethically good for you and what is good for your conscience and how do you feel about the community and how do you feel about the environment and the ecology and and what is it you know what did you get from your parents and what do you have you learned yourself and which bits will you keep and which bits will you give away and 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 what's stopping you giving it away and, and I've heard teenagers say well you know I'm still living at home and and mum and dad want me to believe this um, but I don't. So there's already, you know, there's already kind of an inner conflict where the children, and certainly our work work with um, refugee families, where the kids are receiving an Australian education and socialising with Australian kids, um, is creating dilemmas in the household around values that worked in the mother country, um, but don't work here, or might be illegal here, 
Mm. Um, so there's these family struggles. Um, but for teenagers, I think it's a lovely way in, in mentoring um, because I say to, to teenagers, you know, I was in my 40s when I started taking responsibility for myself and wanting to increase my self-awareness. Um, I would love it if you could dabble in that in your teenage years and work out who you are and what you stand for and what the blocks are and, and the understanding that no one's life is perfect. And, and it's not about that you won't have the ups and downs, it's how you deal with the ups and downs. How do you build resilience? How do you, um, you know, um, contain your, your confidence and exuberance and enthusiasm? Um, how do you share your opinions and articulate your ideas? Um, it's, it's all of these really, really um, exciting ideas, but sometimes it actually brings a whole lot of distress where, where the kids are saying, I'm getting this at home, but I'm getting this at school. Or I get this from mum and dad, but I'm watching my auntie and uncle do exactly the opposite. Mm. So it is complex. Um, I mean, part of the beauty of the work I do is that it is complex. People are complex. Relationships are complexity to the power of something. Um, you know, the old adage, when you have one kid, it's bad enough. When you have two kids, it's three times worse. <laughs> so it's not an additive process. Um, and that's yeah. what I say to um, when I work with, with um, people with cancer and their families. If, if, if one person is going through the grief cycle and is in a particular point, well, we can talk about that. But if every one of the families at a different point, can you imagine how complicated that is? Hmm. And part of the beauty of, of why I love the work I do is trying to tease out that complexity not oversimplified absolutely not to avoid it but it is complex hmm. so what what do you say to people when they say uh, or if they might say someone let's say someone listening to this might say that well that's his life you know i'm going through a bump phase and to go to a counselor or to go to a doctor and a gp that's uh, blowing things out of proportion when in actual fact they might be at a point where they do really need to consider that they're not in denial or they're just you know shunning responsibility for it yep. how do you uh, maybe not convince is not the right word but how do you get them to see that maybe it would be valuable for them to actually consider uh, their situation a little bit more carefully I've used this analogy for years um, although in a different context. And, and it's what I call draw a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. um, where I've used it a lot in the past is around relationships where one party's come in and, and said, I can't put up with this anymore, da, 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 da. But I'm not ready to leave yet. Mm. And then when would you be ready to leave? So where's the line in the sand that it will no longer be a sit down decision, it will be an action. So it would be the same thing here. If you think, well, you know, life just served me um, a bit of bad stuff, um, fine. If you, if you want to give it a go on your own, that's, that builds resilience, no doubt about it. Give yourself a time. Put the line in the sand and say, you know what, if in two weeks' time I'm feeling no better, then I will seek out help. So that's, that's on one side. The other side of that is if 
I feel myself getting substantially worse and that requires you to be self-analyzing where you might even be considering considering suicidality or you know something like that it's immediate um, that you would ring lifeline or go and seek some support but I, 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 I look I don't think it's a bad thing for people to it's a bit like going to the doctor when you've got a sniffle and he says well you know it's going to pass in time um, but if you're still sniffling and you've still got bronchitis in four weeks time and you've started now coughing up blood it's like that's the line in the sand i'm going to the doctor now um, yeah. so there i think there's something about resilience that says i'm prepared to give it a go by myself but i think the the idea of the line in the sand it's a bit like the parenting thing the line of the sand is i know you're not there yet but when would it be and what would it look like so that when you're there it's not a decision anymore it's like i'm at the line of the sand i know what action i have to take so it's no more thinking it's about acting and and until then you go okay if you want to go it alone just watch yourself watch how you're behaving with other people watch how you're um, are you short-tempered? Are you making good decisions? Are you driving erratically? Look, you know, make a list of the key um, um, triggers or measures that you want to put um, in, into that evaluation. And then say, if I'm not any better in a certain period of time, absolutely, no questions asked, no thinking about it anymore, I'm going to go and get some help. Hmm. That's, a great, that's a great response. Thank you for that. I think, I'm not sure if uh, we spoke about this last time or not, but uh, this was actually a bit of a conversation that came up in another interview I did and a con uh, something that's come up a few times in conversation with people who are in positions of uh, counseling or coaching or even in positions of teaching where when they're going through a tough time in their personal life or their professional life and they're basically an authority person um, or in a position of giving advice or counsel to people in similar situations they can feel a bit like a fraud do you ever go through that i know i've been there have you have you have you dealt with that uh, feeling of saying well you know who am i to give this person counseling advice in relationship or in grief when i'm dealing with all of this myself well i i guess for counselors um our job is not to give advice it's to help clients find their own advice but, but I understand the, the, the possible dilemma. And certainly when the GP said to me after Karen died, um, I'm a bit worried about you, I'm, I'm thinking you might be depressed. Mm. Um, I went ballistic in the surgery. You know, I'm a counsellor, don't use the D word with me <laughs> because you know I don't want to be on a different planet while I'm sitting with clients. Yeah. Um, and the poor guy he never brought it up again. <laughs> Maybe it was good that I went to another doctor. Yeah. Um, so I was feeling that sense of um, why can't I fix myself if I'm there to help other people fix themselves? Right. Um, now, eight months on, um, I, I joyfully feel exactly the opposite. And that's possibly why when you and I met for coffee, um, I don't wear the last eight months as a, as a badge of honor. Hmm. But it is what it is so i can talk about it and i think um, i've already seen the benefit of starting a conversation with with other guys who i've known to be under stress but then to discover in fact that 
they are also on, on medication. And um, they had such a sense of relief of being able to talk about it. Um, firstly, they thought they were alone. The common sort of thing that we hear from group participants. Um, gee, I thought I was the only one. Um, but it's, I don't know, it, it, it almost legitimizes it. So it's taking it from the shame part to the normalizing part that says it's happening to so many people. Um, do it, but I personally, I only felt that discomfort, you know, 12 or 13 years ago when the doctor suggested it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I actually feel more authentic, um, being real and being honest and, and, and hopefully being an example of coming out the other side, um, feeling, feeling great and not, not crying at, you know, dog commercials on TV and, and things where I thought, you know, maybe I'm just losing control a little bit mm. uh, and ultimately falling apart. Now I think I'm, I'm stronger. I'm certainly making better decisions. I'm able to, I'm massively more patient now with, with people. Um, so it's like, I don't want to be a walking advertisement of run to the doctor and get medication but certainly be aware of what your options are, put the line in the sand and ask, be brave enough to ask for help. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, I had an experience with uh, mental illness, not mine, but somebody else's. And I, I experienced the, the extreme uh, lengths that denial can manifest the you know how much people can start living a double life because they just don't want to show uh, that they might be going through a struggle and my experience in that situation was that i realized how important this idea of integrity was for me and i made a commitment to myself and in a way i kind of unconsciously perhaps made this commitment to bring this attitude to my clients as well uh, my, my, my coaching clients, both both in uh, therapeutic modalities, but also in business, that I don't ever want to live a double life. I want to be completely honest, and I want to be first and foremost honest with myself, and then make sure that you know there is essentially one dev that is going out there in the world. Uh, yes. You know, I'm not a there's not a different, completely different version of dev that is on this show right now compared to a completely different version of dev that is going to be leading a live seminar compared to a completely different version of Dev that is uh, in a personal relationship. It's really just the one guy that is just basically putting, you know, the relevant uh, representations forward based on the context and situation. But it's the integrity is there. It's one person. And I know when people deal with uh, mental health issues, or rather, they don't deal with mental health issues. Uh, this this element of integrity going out the window and becoming a very secondary priority uh, comes into play, and then integrity though is 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 the knowing of the de- of the deceit. Um, possibly the other another side to that is yeah. that when you're in denial, you're in denial of being in denial. Um, so they might argue that they're being quite authentic because they're not, you know, it's, it's, again, you don't know what you don't know. 
Yeah, that, 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 that's actually a very good point and also a very interesting aspect to talk about. The example that I'm talking about is um, is the opposite of that when people really do, oh, they do you know, know. go home, they do know, they, they are, yeah. you know, trying to kill themselves in their own room, but when they're out in public, you know, they're the chirpiest, happiest person around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, what you, yeah, the example that you raise is very significant as well. And I think that's where um, in supporting friends or in supporting other people who might be in that extent of denial really uh, is important to keep in mind because you might think that somebody's depressed and they're denying it but if they're actually in denial then they don't know that they're denying it that, that's what you're saying right yes, yes yeah and look it, it may well be that it's not totally unethical to wear two faces mm-hmm. as long as you're aware like for example um if you believe you're struggling with with depression yep but you don't want to let's say you're a single mum and you don't want to worry the kids so in front of the kids you look like a high performing individual and the kids go to bed and you fall in a screaming heap mm-hmm. is that lying to the kids um, I think if you choose not to get help for yourself yeah it's probably a, a, a rotten model to live your life because the kids won't suffer, but you will suffer, which means the kids actually will suffer. It, it's like when, when we work with couples who say we don't fight until the kids go to bed and therefore they can't hear it. And, and you, you reckon? You think they don't feel the tension in the air in the house? It's, it's, so those people need to understand that hiding it from the kids and then crying in the room afterwards the kids do know, and and that's where we need to accept responsibility, where we're conscious that we're denying ourselves, um, and go get some help. Whatever they choose the help to be, some people will go to spiritual healers, some people will go, it, it's about take the first step, and then work out if that step has worked for you, and if it hasn't, then take a step in a different direction. But I think to to keep repeating was it Einstein who said that stupidity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result? Yeah, insanity. It, it's been yeah. accredited to Einstein, yeah. whoever said it. So it's, yeah. it's like you put the kids to bed and chirpy chirpy and then you go in your room and cry. Mm. Um, and then the next night you do chirpy 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 and you go, it's like, who are you kidding? Yeah. So it's to a degree, if it's buying you time, even though the medication, certainly for me, took um, five or six weeks to minimize the negative it took another two months for me to actually start feeling happy if you're buying time so you're pretending so that the reality will actually catch up to the pretending then maybe there's a case for pretending Hmm. and knowingly putting on a different face rather than a different facet of the same diamond but i think to make it a, a a life choice um is is a losing formula ultimately it's a losing formula because it takes so much more energy to to live the lie yeah yeah very interesting what what, do you have a perspective on this anecdotal kind of um statistics that people talk about where you know people who are highly creative uh, particularly you know the creative genius types they're more susceptible to depression my, my sense of it 
is that they are their own harshest critic, mm-hmm. um, which means in their own eyes, nothing is ever good enough. So if they're in the fashion business, their visual looks is never good enough. If they're designers, their clothes aren't good enough. Their artists, their paintings aren't good enough. Um, so I think subconsciously, if your self-talk is negative for long enough, you believe your own publicity. Hmm. And I think it, 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 it is such a heavy burden to live with, to be able to look at your own creation and say, gee, that's crap. To a point where if other people say, my goodness, that's fantastic, you'll actually be happy to argue with them. Yeah. So I think that creativity um, leads them to, to want to excel to stand out from the crowd. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't think anyone wants to be a fashion designer to look just like everything else at Target. They want to look like better than everything else at the best boutique shop in, in Double Bay. Hmm. So they dry, they're very driven as well as being very creative. And, and they take rejection uh, more harshly, I think, than, than the rest of us. Um, but they will have already judged themselves as failures anyway, in, almost to, to uh, preempt. And I, th- I think that's a, it's a tough pill to swallow every night. Yeah, I know a lot of people listening to the show will have that experience because a lot of people listening to this, a lot of people connected with me, my friends, they're entrepreneurs but particularly they're creative entrepreneurs. So I don't necessarily mean just artists, but mm-hmm. people who put a lot of creativity into um, into their business and also into just designing their lifestyle in a way that's very uh, separate to what you would consider mainstream or what you could call mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. And and then they have that experience. So I'm wondering, you know, what would you say to them? What would you say to someone listening to this who has that experience of almost being attached to this idea of being a perfectionist because they feel if they somehow get rid of their depression or they get rid of um, their, you know, even their broodiness, then it will actually take away their creativity and take away their uh, their drive and take away the, the pride they feel in being so different to the norm. I, I don't want to appear to be an expert. I, I can only draw on experiences of, of working with such people. Sure. And I found that the people I've worked with who are the um, pointy end of the um, entrepreneurial, you know, um, startup ideas people, mm-hmm. typically a very big picture. And yep. they're, they're very good at it. But to do everything, pardon me, on your own means not only do you have to do the bits you love, you've got to do the bread and butter stuff, which typically big picture people hate. Hmm. But if they're on a tight budget, then the idea of outsourcing the crappy bits, they may not be in a position to do. Um, to me, the, the greatest complementary partnership is someone who couldn't do a big idea if you paid them millions but their attention to detail is spectacular, working with someone who's so up in the head in the clouds, but wouldn't know which part of the check to sign, they make an incredible um, match. And I think 
broadly, more broadly speaking, if you're doing work that you are not entirely passionate about, um, everyone's got some, you know, part of their work that they go, oh, a bit tedious. Yeah. But if, if, if you think of the entrepreneur, the big picture idea are only one or two ideas and they're big. But the amount of detail in registering a business name and setting up BAS statements and applying for GST and getting a point of sale system or whatever it is, and then a, what about a sales force and a demo kit and a, you know, there's all these practical things that for a kind of a startup situation mm-hmm. means that the big picture is, is kind of out there and then the rest of it is tedium. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's, it's not a good, um, um, mix of, of of work because what they really love they're doing a lot of right at the beginning but it it, it kind of tails off very quickly um, so I, I think that sense of kind of drowning in your own dreams or or, or whatever could be overcome um, by at a very early stage being in fact when you've made perhaps when you first um, um, cost out what the dream is going to cost to get off the ground that you almost immediately cost in um, the details type people, accountant people or legal people or, or, or sales people or whatever it is that, that your idea has to allow you to continue there and do, you know, 75% of your day at that level and 25% just checking up on the people who 75% of the day is going to be the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Because I think it, for many people, um, just their beautiful dreams, it just, uh, they just go, get overwhelmed with the detail to actually get it off the ground. I actually think that's brilliant business advice, David. That's amazing. Really, really, really well said. Yeah, no, no, really, really well said. That's That's excellent. Um, do you think that do you think that advice or perspective can be translated to personal relationships as well? Um, I mean, specifically uh, in in the context of looking for a life partner. Oh, yeah. Um, probably less so than in business. Yes, it's lovely to have someone who's always planning the holidays and someone who's always balancing the checkbook to know when you can afford to go on the holidays. Uh But um, some of these in a personal sense are skills that you can learn. Um, I do do a fair bit of pre-marriage counseling and and see, and and as you know me, I, I do a lot of, I get a sense of people. It's almost like energy in the room. And I've worked with couples that I know are fantastic people and I get such a good sense about their coupleness, mm-hmm. and they don't have a clue. <laughs> you know, they just don't have a clue on how to communicate, how to resolve conflicts, so that they're denying. You know, that they're running away. It's avoidance strategies and stuff like that. Yeah. But overwhelmingly, you get the sense if these people just pick up some skills, they're going to make an incredible couple. Mm. And I see that quite a lot. So there's probably more opportunity to to learn and develop and and better still even teach one another different skills that are important in a relationship. And in pre-marriage counselling, it's interesting because we look at so many dimensions of a relationship. 
finance is but one um, that that don't always kind of map across to a to a business sense um, like having children <laughs> yeah which might be you know getting more employees can we afford kids can we afford more staff maybe there is some level of mapping but um, I think there is more individual contribution that can be made into a relationship um, than I think in a startup, which is a, a pretty hectic world, um, which is why very few new businesses um, survive past, I don't know what the statistic is, is it two years or something? Yeah. Um, because you're working in the business and not on the business and all of these cliches. Mm -hmm. And it's because you haven't got other people doing the day-to-day -day stuff, so you're doing in order for you to do the next level of dreaming. Okay, this is so, this is fascinating. I'm I'm very intrigued by this, and we are kind of running out of time. But I I'm, yeah. I'm, I really have to ask, um, why do people come to pre-marriage counselling? This is actually the first time I've ever heard of this. Um, it's it's interesting because the government's just announced uh, that they're going to give um, about to be married or just married. Um, couples, same-sex mm -hmm. couples or, or um, mainstream couples, a $200 voucher okay. to, to spend in some sort of relationship development. Um, and, and that's because um, the ministers realise that it's a lot cheaper to fix the problem at the beginning than it is at the end. Right. Like, divorce is very, very expensive. Pre-marriage is, um, for some religions, um, it's mandatory. Um, so, you, but whether you go to the the priest or to, to do kind of religious pre-marriage, which is maybe centered around contraception and how you're going, you know, how you're going to bring your children up. Yeah. Um, ours is is secular um, because we're a secular organisation. So mm. we just look at finances and career and the impact of extended family and um, you know, there's the, a the whole host of things. Um, around communications, conflict resolutions, um, social styles, um, um, bad habits in one another. Um, and, and the purpose, I say, is not to determine whether these people should get married or even whether to guarantee it's going to last, yeah. but rather to bring forward conversations that normally do come up in marriage. Wow. But to Very bring it forward, it, again, aligning with what I said earlier about parenting, like you do the deal with the kids when you're not at war with the kids. And this is bringing forward conversations that will naturally occur in a marriage mm. before it gets heated. You know, I, I said I wanted kids at the end of this year. Yes, but you told me you were going to bring in more money. And let's talk about it now. How many kids do you want? Do you have a plan in mind? Um, what's going to happen if you're a dual income? And, and you have to go to one income, have you thought about that? And, and they, you know, in many cases they say, oh yeah, we have, great. Other times they say, oh no, no, we'll worry about it later. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the pre-questions asks each of them separately, how many children do you want? And, and then it's left to me to break the news that one said one and the other said five. <laughs> or more embarrassingly, one said zero and another said five. Wow. And they're getting married, and I'm thinking, don't you talk about the most basic things? Yeah. So it really just makes sure that we touch the the core conversations that will come up, and if they legitimately want to defer some of the conversations, that's fine as well, as long as we put on the table that we have now chosen to defer that conversation, um, and they take home a workbook, and then they can um, 
get around to that part of the conversation. There's some exercises to help them kind of tease out each point of view and how they're going to negotiate a final um, way forward on, on that. Okay. So it's, it's very interesting work and, and, it's, and it's just brilliant. And, and it works perfectly in second marriage. Actually, in second marriages, it's harder for me because there is so much unresolved stuff sometimes being brought into a second marriage in terms of expectations, kids from a previous marriage. Um, but I also have fun with 17-year-olds who just love each other and uh, wouldn't have a clue about having a serious conversation because they're out partying all the time and mm. they've decided to get married. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's interesting and fascinating and, and it's just part of the, the, the wealth of, of uh, complexity that I see out in the world and that, that I enjoy kind of being on the periphery without, um, without giving advice or giving direction just to be able to observe and reflect and, and help people make their own minds up. Yeah, I, I just had a recent uh, moment of enlightenment or insight, if you will. A friend of mine from Europe was telling me that a good friend of hers uh, is getting married soon in Europe and, uh, and, and she also happens to be pregnant. And I was like, oh, okay, congratulations. Um, is that why they're kind of getting married? And she was like, no, what does that have to do with anything? So I asked her, is this normal that, uh, you know, the girl gets pregnant before marriage? And she said, uh, yes, it's actually quite normal that people have kids and then they get married. Okay. And I don't know how much of a generalization that was, um, but I know, I, like I thought about it, and I actually know a lot of people who fit that bill. And what she was explaining to me was that, uh, yes, marriage is kind of, you know, in, depending on your religious background, obviously, but in a lot of parts in Europe, um, it, it's kind of like you build the relationship before you make that commitment of getting married. And the idea is exactly what you just said, that that entire process of building a relationship and building a family is more important than you know having a document that says you belong to each other. Mm. Uh, that's how she put it. And, yeah, know. there's certainly a lot of people here who, who do you know, uh, live together and trial marriages or whatever mm. terminology they want to use. Yeah. Um, in terms of bringing a child in um, in something that might be immature as a relationship um, I think kind of begs a couple of questions in terms of um, the rights of the children or the, the benefits to the children rather than the benefits of what it might represent to the parents. That's, that's exactly that what I thought as well. It was very, yeah, very like interesting. Trial marriage and, and a lot of the clients I'm seeing now have lived together for um, maybe a year and a half or two years. They come to um, pre-marriage counselling. I had a couple who have lived together for five years, actually had no intention of getting married, uh -huh. but, but she read about it, the, the female partner, and she sees it, she, she, she likened it to a grease and oil change for the car. Um, you know, she said, oh, I thought I heard a few rattles. And I, I thought we should both come in and, and do um, this, you know, three three session program. Right. And uh, what was interesting is that she left him. Okay. She left him as a result. So okay. she, and then it's not because the three sessions um, gave her news she didn't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, most people know the answer that they're looking for. They might want validation. They may want to hear themselves speak the rationale behind it, but most people know. Hmm. So in this case, you know, whatever she described as a few rattles, 
um, she must have known that she was, she herself was unhappy in the relationship, and and the psychometric certainly showed that they they had low levels of alignment on many of the dimensions that we were scoring on. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just it's all about informed decisions, I think. Mm. And and she got information, and and she could see his reaction to stuff they'd never talked about or talked about and never resolved. And then she decided, you know, in her own way, I don't think he's going to shift. This is important to me. I don't think this can, can continue. So um, off she trotted. Yeah. Well, I, I have a feeling we're going to have to do a part two very soon, specifically <laughs> to talk about relationships, because I'm absolutely fascinated with relationship dynamics and social dynamics. Um, I've had, uh, you know, enough screwed up relationships to be, be all that much more fascinated in them. And, uh, you know, I've had some great experiences as well, but it's something I love talking about. And it, uh, it, it yeah, it, it's sort of occurring to me now that being a relationship specialist, if you will, um, by virtue of the work that you do, there's just, yeah, there's so much to talk about. The one question that I do want to ask you uh, before I go to my very final question that I ask everyone is, in very, very simple terms, what is your advice gathering considering all of your experience working in, uh, you know, the context of counseling couples. What, what is your advice to people who are wanting to determine whether someone is a compatible or suitable <laughs> partner or not? Uh, if, I wrote a, if I knew the answer, I'd write a book and get rid of it. <laughs> um, look, to me, the, if you're looking for the most fundamental um, building block, the one that you put into the foundation mm -hmm. is is communication and I know everyone talks about it and and it's interesting because different couples have a different view of what communication is it's like you know for some couples it's whether the roosters are going to win on the weekend and 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 that sort of light what I call shallow communications mm -hmm. um, I'd rather see how they work through deep conversations and and dare I use the word feelings conversations, yeah. which for guys, you know, that, that's the end of half your listeners, I think they just bolted. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really important for that depth, because in that depth um, comes security of hearing, like one partner's sense of trust and security comes from watching and listening the other partner um, articulate a point of view. Mm -hmm. So that's one. And the other is, is conflict resolution. So like for the 17-year-olds, they say, oh, we'll just never fight. And I said, well, that's just really stupid. Yeah. Um, because their sense is that if we have a disagreement, that means we have to divorce. Um, and, and I hold a very, very strong view about being able to, to disagree, play nice, and and you know, learn about um, kind of negotiating, but not so that everyone gets half the orange, but someone who wants the juice gets the juice and someone who wants the, the skin gets the skin. Hmm. So conflict management and resolution, how do we do that? Do we talk nicely to each other? Do we scream at each other? Do we stand over, you know, is it intimidation and then maybe domestic violence? Or can we sit and say, you know what, we just hold different points of view. Um, I've suggested to, to a couple that when they disagree that they put a, a value out of 10. What does this mean to you? Oh, it's a two. What does this mean to you? It's a nine. 
So, and, and say to one another. So the person who's holding it too might say, God, if it means that much to you, it doesn't mean that much. Oh, look, just do it. Um, so then they need to, then they can really um, trust each other that when they say, this is a nine for me, they mean it. Um, so th not all disagreements have the same weight and then the same value. So it's how do we behave when we have different points of view and how, we, how do we just discuss life and celebrate? Because communication is also about celebrating great things, making fabulous plans. Um, it's not, not necessarily a negative thing at all. Um, because good communication skills also is how do you deal with the extended family at Christmas time and the cousin who gave you a happy present and <laughs> it's, it's, it's all of that. So yeah. communication and conflict resolution, I think, are the two. Pour, put that in the concrete in the foundation. Otherwise, I reckon the house won't last long. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Thank you. And uh, my final question, which is what I ask every guest that comes on the show is considering all of your professional and personal experiences and the show is called the life optimize show what are your top three tips for people looking to optimize uh, their life <laughs> top three tips one is um, to be real and honest to yourself hmm. Um, one is to look at every, look at different aspects of the same issue. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it looks negative, but is there a positive frame? Is there some silver lining in there or is it all doom and gloom? Because that way we can kind of hold our esteem and hold our positive view of things. Um, I think the third one is, is be be happy as a default position because when we're born like we don't know what unhappy is okay they slap you on the bum and you cry but mm. you know fundamentally if you see i see my granddaughter with you know great parents and and my granddaughter knows not much about crying and a truckload about laughing and giggling um, so who teaches us to be miserable and stuff so I think, um, you know, be happy as a default position. Very nice. Short, short and sweet, but uh, yeah, profound as well. David, it's been really, <laughs> really good talking to you. Um, I, I definitely right. think we need to book in a part two uh, to dive deeper in some of these things. Always welcome. But uh, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. And if anyone's interested in talking with you or finding out more about you or if they have any questions about this, uh, show is there any way they can contact you or should they just contact me and you know, yeah look maybe filter it, filter it through you because mm -hmm. you and I keep in touch and uh, I'm certainly happy to uh, to get in touch with individuals that want some clarity or or even happily disagree with some of the things that I've said because heck they're only my opinions and based on my own beliefs and my own experiences and my own um, learnings um, so if someone wants to debate a point, that's fine as well. Yeah, I always encourage that as well. I mean, even on the show, people I'm talking with, but also anyone who you know wants to leave a comment uh, publicly, I, th I think it's a very great platform to instigate some debate and insight and thought. But uh, as David said, if you want to actually reach out and uh, and speak to him personally, just yeah, shoot me an email or shoot me uh, a message and I can put you in touch as well. 
That'd be great, Dave. Thank you for that. No, thank you. All right, David, we'll leave it My at pleasure. that. Thanks okay. so much again. And uh, yeah, hope to see you soon, man. Catch up soon. Good on you, Dave. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye now. If you enjoyed this episode of the Life Optimized Show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. And whatever you do, don't keep the episode to yourself. Make sure you go and share it with your friends and networks. Until next time, I'm Dave Singh.